Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm delighted to share the rest of the second series is once again in partnership with Heck. Being an independent and family-owned business, they pull out all the stops to bring that farmer's market quality to the supermarket shelf. In addition to their delicious original range, they offer veggie options too, catering for absolutely everyone, all of which can be found online at heckfood.co.uk and in the major supermarkets too. Hello and thank you so much for tuning in to Food for Thought, a podcast on a mission to equip you with all the evidence-based advice you need to live and breathe a healthy lifestyle. I'm Rhiannon Lambert, a registered nutritionist, master practitioner, best-selling author of Renourish, A Simple Way to Eat Well and founder of Retrition, London's leading private nutrition clinic. In each episode of this second series, I'll be joined by special guests, all of whom can be considered authorities in the world of well-being, so that together we can learn fact from fiction and empower the healthiest versions of ourselves with trusted expert advice. We live in an age of misinformation and pseudoscience. One minute something's good for us, the next is deadly. From national newspapers to Instagram, everyone is talking about nutrition. But such a constant stream of information can make it difficult for even the most intelligent to distinguish reliable research from weak studies and sensationalist headlines. Nutrition research is complex and is all too often oversimplified. So joining me to sort fact from fiction and hear exactly who we should trust is nutritionist and lawyer Alan Flanagan. Hello, Alan. How are things? Things are good. Well, they're better now you're on the podcast, Alan, that's for sure. And I think I'd love to start by asking you about why some nutrition myths die, others keep bouncing back. They can be incredibly frustrating um, in what seems to be the face of, you know, actual evidence out there. Why do you think this is? Uh, I think there's a couple of levels to it. The first is the old adage that the more things get repeated, the more they become a truth or established. Mm. So I think that we do have some ideas or beliefs in nutrition or about diet and health that go back um, maybe more than we appreciate now with social media where everything's so current. So let's take the paleo diet, for example, which, Mm. you know, we could think started as a craze maybe around 2007 or 8 mm-hmm. but you know actually the research on that would go back to the 1980s and ideas about ancestral eating would go back even further yeah. so that's not as new as we think it is and then the other thing that I think is more recent as well is people now are rejecting science generally we have quite a post-truth 
anti-intellectual age. We see it play out politically. We mm. see it play out with issues like climate change and the environment. Yeah. So nutrition is very much in that area where people would rather reject science for the idea that it's perhaps corrupt or influenced by industry or funding and all these kind of things. Mm. And they'd rather believe that drinking celery juice will cure an autoimmune <laughs> disease, which it yeah. won't. No, it, it's sad. I think, like you said, the conspiracy kind of theories. Yeah, yeah you hear a lot of those. I've definitely heard a lot in my time. <laughs> Could we start with one of those theories? And, well, when I say theory, it's more of a kind of famous quote that this has kind of evolved from. Mm -hmm. I know you've got a lot to say on this subject. Let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. Now, this is something that obviously came around thousands of years ago, really, if you think about it. But what? why do you think it's not so harmless? And what's happened? Yeah, I, I think it's it's interesting that we've had an evolution of evidence-based medicine, yet they're harking back to a Greek philosopher and doctor mm. for ideas about health now. Um, I don't like the way that this food is medicine tagline has had a resurgence in the last certainly five years. Mm. And it's had a resurgence within medicine. So mm. the one thing that I think you'd appreciate as a nutrition professional mm. is anyone that I know in the nutrition space can't stand the tagline food is medicine. Yes. And everyone that's in love with it and enamored by it are all medical doctors. Mm -hmm. So I think it's problematic for a few reasons. One is, like I said, we live in this age now where people are kind of rejecting science, rejecting yeah. conventional approaches to healthcare. And look, no one's pretending that we have all of the answers already, but we've made significant strides. And an example here that I think is quite good is if you look at mortality globally in 2007, so just about 10 years ago, HIV was still the number five leading cause really? of mortality globally. Mm. It's not even in the top 10 anymore. Mm. That's conventional medicine working. It's doing mm. its job. So just because we have continuing issues with things like diabetes and cardiovascular disease doesn't mean that we're not making progress in those areas. Mm. And the problem with food is medicine when medical doctors talk about it, is that it has the potential to artificially inflate nutrition and the role that it has in health mm -hmm. beyond a medical intervention or beyond something that could actually help someone. So when you look at research on nutrition and diet health interactions, the diseases that we have now, chronic lifestyle diseases, take a long time to develop for the most part. Mm. So the role of nutrition in health is very much not acute. It's over the, the long term. Yeah. And so nutrition is primarily preventative. And my problem with the whole food is medicine tagline is that if people overinvest in that idea, they may very well forego treatments because they think that, well, turmeric cures cancer. Therefore, let's not get treatment. Therefore, let's, let's not get treatment. Yeah. And, you mm -hmm. know, this idea... I think comes from doctors who have relatively limited understanding of nutrition as a science. Well, don't they get less than, let's say, six to seven hours yeah. in, in yeah. their entire education? Exactly. And that's a conversation that's happening now in order to, to change that. And I'm involved with a group of medical students who are really working hard to increase nutrition in the medical curriculum. And I think that's great. And I'm all yeah. for doctors expanding their knowledge and improving it. Oh, 100%. Yeah, but what I'm not for is this kind of band of media savvy entrepreneurial doctors who are really cashing in on this idea mm. of food as medicine, mm -hmm. overstating the effects of it under the authority bias guise of trust me, I'm a doctor. Oh, yes. And sell a paper. A headline. Yeah, sell a paper, yeah. sell a headline, sell a book, mm. which most of them are doing. Yeah. And I just have a difficulty with 
what is a clear lack of understanding of where the applicability of nutrition starts and where it ends. And anyone that works in private practice in nutrition will have seen the benefits of improving diet for certain things. Mm. They'll have often also seen that nutrition could do very little for people in some circumstances. Of course, 100%. And I couldn't actually agree more with that. It's very interesting that if you put the title doctor before anything, people tend to think, like the phrase, trust me, I'm a doctor. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think I've seen every play on the doctor will serve you now or the doctor will help you, the doctor's here, any kind of, you know, phrase. I'm trying to think of the slogans that I've seen in the media over the last, um, well, two or three years especially. So would you say to people listening out there, I mean, I know my opinion, and this isn't obviously a fact, is that I think everybody should be working together. You mm-hmm. know, the, bet, the doctors should be working with qualified nutrition professionals, registered dietitians and nutritionists, and we should be teaming up. But what would you say to people that are going to their GP and their doctor is giving out maybe nutritional information? Um, it's difficult, I guess, to know it because it depends on what the quantity content of that information is and I do know a lot of GPs that have gone on and and done a master's in nutrition Mm. or or done nutrition qualifications and they ultimately understand as well that the kind of advice they need to give most people in the general population is really basic and at the broadest level at the basic level we know enough about what you know is the constituent of a healthy diet yeah I think we all know really (laughs) so so it's 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 in principle it's one thing, but mm. most of the doctors that I know that 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 do work well, kind of in this space, are all seeing that really for the patients that they're dealing with, this isn't anything to do with food. It's to do with socioeconomic drivers yes. and social determinants of health. Yeah. So we're talking about people in socially deprived areas mm-hmm. that don't have access to fruits and vegetables, even if they knew yeah. what to do with it. Yeah. Lack of time, lack of food preparation mm-hmm. skills. So all of these issues are nothing to do with Families food. To feed. And it's so interesting, again, because actually the inequalities still exist in the UK. And I think it's very easy to be in, in a London bubble, even where we're recording this podcast now to anyone mm-hmm. listening in a city environment that may be surrounded by access to incredible exotic foods mm-hmm. even that you just wouldn't get elsewhere and what about a question that comes up for me every time in clinic which I'm so happy you're here to discuss with me now and that would be sugar mm-hmm. so some people call it the devil um, we, we, we both know it's not exactly very nutritionally dense however does it have a place in our diet Well, everything has a place in the diet. It's just the context that changes. What I find interesting, I I like being a student of history because I think we can learn a lot from the past that informs where we're at now. Mm. And if you look at the average UK population diet now, sugar intake on average about 12 to 13 Mm percent. You go back to the Industrial Revolution, 15 to 16 percent. You go back to the 1740s, the average family in Britain at the time would have consumed up to four kilos of sugar a week dissolved in tea alone. (laughs) So sugar intake was absolutely astronomical 300 years ago compared Mm. to where it is now. Mm. It's just that was in the context of a nutritionally inadequate diet and the issues that faced people, particularly from socially disadvantaged backgrounds at that time, was malnutrition or undernutrition. So really what we've had is a fundamental change in the food supply and food availability and the composition of foods that people are eating. The composition is a big factor, isn't it? It is a big factor. Mm. And I think I think what people like about the sugar narrative is that it's easy, simple scapegoat. Let's identify this one thing in our diet and let's assume that that has increased more than anything else, which it hasn't. Mm. And let's put all the blame on that. 
when actually when you look at the foods that comprise the typical diet in the UK, we're talking about refined baked goods. Mm. We're talking about desserts, this whole mm. category of dessert foods, potato chips, salty mm. snacks. So these are foods that are as high in fat, often not even high in sugar, but high in refined starch. Mm. And it's the combination of those that drives high energy diets, high energy yeah, intake. Yeah. And it's very easy to consume a significant amount of more energy than is needed when you're consuming a diet that is oriented around those foods. Completely. I mean, we definitely don't have the meat into veg approach anymore, really, no. do we, in society? And that's something for everyone listening. When we're talking about these types of foods, we're literally just referring to probably quick and easy grab-on-the-go options, maybe a little bit more than, than we had before. And for your grandparents putting a bit of sugar in, in their cup of tea or coffee, that's very different when you think of their overall diet back then yeah. so it's very good to draw discrepancies there and how it's not very useful to just label but what about when it comes to sugar being addictive so this is something that I'm yeah. constantly having to explain in my clinic to my clients I'm asked it all the time what's your take on that saying and that phrase well I don't necessarily have a take I just have what the evidence says Brilliant. and I'll just start <laughs> with the conclusions so people are in no two minds about it yeah. sugar is not addictive Thank in humans you. there we go sugar is addictive in rats and yeah. mice yeah. Uh, rats and mice aren't humans. I hope that's pointing out the obvious. <laughs> and the studies that you see kind of daily he mail headlines about sugar being as addictive as cocaine mm -hmm. are in rat models where they make sugar and cocaine available. However, here's what they're not really qualifying. Sugar obviously provides energy. Exactly. So if you're an organism like a rat or a mouse, your primary instinct being survival, you're going to sense energy and you're going to consume what gives you energy not what gives you no energy, no calories. Mm. So at the end of the day, sugar is energetic in those animal models. Mm -hmm. What they then do is they take the human criteria for addiction, which is the DSM-5, and they then apply it to scenarios where they force the rats or mice into um, different situations. And the results of those situations are what they use to indicate whether those behaviours correspond to human addiction. Mm. So we're talking about really experimental stuff Bottom line is when you take that into humans, there are really fundamental parts of the addiction picture mm. that simply aren't present in humans. Yeah. So there's no increasing consumption over time. There's no yeah. escalation in antisocial behavior. There's no deterioration of professional life and relationships and all of these variables that define addiction. Mm. And I think when we think about what a scourge addiction is in society and how problematic it is, yeah, whether awful. it's alcohol or drugs, I just, I have such a problem with the comparison of something like a pack of Skittles to something like heroin. I used to love a pack of Skittles, Alan. Is I still do. Favorite? Yeah, <laughs> I know. But they don't have that tropical one anymore, do they? No. That's the one as a kid. I remember when they brought out the different colored packs. Yeah, I'm still just old school red <laughs> yeah. pack Skittles. Classic packs. And I mean, when it comes to having sugar in moderation, that's something I'm always trying to get across. But... It's not helpful, is it, when people label things in that way as good or bad or addictive? Because, of course, sugar's going to make people feel good, which is where perhaps the confusion's coming in again. They think, oh, I'm enjoying something, therefore yeah. it must be bad for me. It's delicious. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> I shouldn't like this. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think part of what we've had certainly in the last 10 to 15 years has been an increase in the moralizing of food yeah. and food choices. And when you look at the research in that area, I mean, it's quite clear what dichotomous black or white thinking about food does to people's 100%. food behaviours. Yeah. And it precipitates restriction. That restriction precipitates uh, really adverse behavioural consequences with, with food. Once the whole the, diet cycle. The, the whole diet cycle. Yeah. 
And this idea that, you know, you create this giant red button and you're asking yourself not to press it, you Mm. know, from a behavioral perspective, it just doesn't work. But the bottom line is we just know enough about food and diet and health to know that there's no such thing as a good or bad food in isolation. There are good or bad quality total diets, Mm. but it's the sum of its parts and diet's always the sum of its parts. And I think that focusing myopically on one food as that is bad is just ridiculous. And it's a moral value, not a nutritional reflection. That is it. It is moral. And that's the interesting thing. And I think another um, perhaps food item or component of the diet, let's talk about gluten free. Mm. Let's just go in there because it's gained mass popularity (laughs) for a reason. Um, You'd think that it was dying a death. It's it's not, unfortunately. So people with celiac disease, of course, this is a problem. But only 1% of the population we know has celiac Mm -hmm. disease. So... Why do you think people are being told to avoid gluten, even by some professionals out there? There seems to be a big confusion Mm. around this subject. Yeah. So as you identify correctly, there is a percentage of the population Mm. who have a specific condition for which the treatment is not a pharmaceutical intervention. It's a dietary intervention and it's gluten-free diet for life. Beyond that, we do have emerging research that suggests that probably an extra maybe 8 9% mm. have a, a non-celiac Sense. wheat sensitivity. Mm. But they may be sensitive to other proteins in the wheat that isn't gluten. Yeah. And the other thing, when you start to unpick that research, is often the trials are in people with irritable bowel syndrome. And actually, there's some interesting trials that looked at the effects of gluten-containing diets, but that were low in FODMAPs, mm. which are these short-chain types of carbohydrates that are quite problematic for a lot of people with IBS. And those trials found that actually it was the FODMAPs, not necessarily Mm -hmm. the gluten that was causing people issues. Um, So it's a really nuanced area. But on top of all of this, you had this explosion, I guess, in the popular space, the social media space, again, of this kind of ancestral idea of, well, humans didn't eat grains until 10,000 and all this kind of nonsense. Cookbooks bringing out gluten-free cookbooks. Gluten-free cookbooks or paleo, grain-free, whatever. And they link it to all sorts of really spurious conditions, claims, and it's all weak. And I just think that it's a reflection of bad communication of research or bad interpretation by people who can't interpret research. Um, It's gone so far though, hasn't it, Alan? Because the supermarket shelves now are packed Mm -hmm. with gluten-free products and also people genuinely believe they've cured themselves. Yeah, I I think the gluten-free or the free-from food Mm. industry is actually a really good example of how responsive the food industry is to consumer demand. And if you look at the products that are on the shelves, it's a gluten-free cereal, a gluten-free Frosties, a gluten-free... And so it's basically Mm. what they've done is they've created a gluten-free alternative to the typical Western diet pattern, which is quite funny in an ironic sense because people think that they're improving their diet by going gluten-free. They're just eating the same food without (laughs) gluten overall. So it's it's a you know they're still mm. eating a diet that just consists of refined cereals yeah. Um, yeah. and whatever else. Just and paying more money for it. Really. Paying more money for yeah. it. Um, you know, and, and hashtag health gluten free. <laughs> so you know the 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 industry is responsive to people. But an interesting observation that I've had is if you want to see 
the real socioeconomic divides look at the gluten-free thing. Go into a supermarket or in a socially deprived area you and you won't it. see a single no, product. Exactly. So it's just the worried well, the already healthy mm. who are, ironically, it's the people who are already healthy and wealthy that are the ones that are so obsessed with healing, quote mm. unquote, um, and are the people that are most likely to follow most of these idiotic and diets. And invest more money into them. Yeah. And it, that this brings up another phrase that I hear all the time as well. Um, if you can't pronounce it, mm-hmm. then it's obviously not good for you. So the thing is, this is a good one to really divulge into because I can see where it comes from. I get it. I'm sure we all do. However, of course, when, when it comes to things like alpha-linoic acid or ascorbic mm-hmm. acid, which is another word for vitamin C, mm-hmm. If you see ascorbic acid on a, pa- a packet, people are going to panic, whereas we yeah. both know that means vitamin C. Yeah. So how how do we break like the, this? The, the, the most important essential <laughs> fatty acid for brain yes. health is docosahexanoic acid. Go and pronounce that. Yeah. So, yeah, th- this idea that if you can't pronounce it or if, if a food product has more than four ingredients, mm. don't eat it. And it's like, so does that mean I shouldn't make risotto? I mean, what, yeah. what kind of ridiculous <laughs> arbitrary rules we're getting into? Yeah. And it just doesn't make any sense. There's this idea that a lot of the things that are in the food supply for mm-hmm. example, artificial sweeteners, which is quite controversial, yes, are is. just unleashed onto humanity as some sort of giant experiment by mm-hmm. you know the corporations or, mm-hmm. or whoever. The bottom line is anything that's added to the food supply goes through extensive toxicology monitoring programs by the EU, so by the European safe. Food Standards Agency. Mm-hmm. They do long-term toxicology studies. They do safety data assessments. They look at habitual levels of consumption of the foods that any additive will be put into in the food Mm. supply so they can gauge roughly what the exposure in the population would be. It is a highly regulated (laughs) process. So the fears are completely unfounded. And again, it just ties back to this idea that natural is good because Mm. unnatural is bad, which Mm. is a logical fallacy that a lot of people are just making the mistake of over and over right now. Very, very nicely put, actually. I couldn't have explained that better myself. We can't eat foods, everyone listening, without them going through rigorous checks. I mean, everything is safe on the shop shelves for you. If, if it weren't, I mean, we'd be raking in the money with lawsuits. Yeah. <laughs> we really would. I mean, in the last four years, the number of vegans as well, this is another topic, has quadrupled in the UK. I can see Alan's face right now as I'm bringing up this topic. And... Um, there's an explosion in new foods and ready meals becoming available. Now, mm-hmm. I've heard it all from the point where people may think that going veggie or vegan is, is a way to heal your body. Mm-hmm. Now, we both know it could, there's, taking ethics out of this, because mm-hmm. obviously it's an ethical choice. Mm-hmm. What are your views on these kinds of new products and these vegan products? Emerging? Yeah, the taking the ethics out of it is important because yes. people are entitled to their choices. Choices. Um, what I find is happening with vegan uh, diets is that people are conflating the moral or ethical choice with the nutritional value or benefit yes. to the diet. Yes. And they're entirely separate considerations. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, and this is the same with, with to a degree with the gluten-free thing, you know, going gluten-free shouldn't just mean opting for the same nutritionally poor overall kind of diet yeah. composition and just eating it free of gluten. The idea of going towards a more plant-based vegan or vegetarian diet or wherever on that plant-based spectrum that someone yeah. finds works for them 
the idea there should be to take the plant basing seriously and eat more mm. vegetables and eat of more course, legumes and eat more grains. Exactly. Thing. Yeah. So within that, though, we don't have necessarily that as the um, emerging norm. I think what's happening is people are adopting the diet, and again, they're just going straight to meat substitutes, sausage mm-hmm. substitutes, mm-hmm. vegan sausages, mm-hmm. vegan whatever it is, Jack, you know, jackfruit, uh, vegan yogurt, and, you, yeah, yeah, vegan curry, whatever. Yeah. And thinking it's healthier. Yeah, and and actually if you scrutinize some of the nutritional information on them, they're often quite high in salt. Um, people have largely forgotten about salt in the discussion mm. because it has been successfully reduced in the food supply, mm. but those products are quite high in it. Yeah. Um And it's this idea that, you know, the benefits to eating these types of diets are specifically to do with food groups that we know interact with health in a positive sense, Mm. pulses, beans, whole grains, fruits and vegetables. The purpose of going vegetarian or vegan or anywhere on that spectrum Mm. should be to be increasing the amount of those food groups, not just substituting in for a kind of a relatively packaged um, and (laughs) pre-prepared diet, which, again, is fine in the context of the rest of that diet pattern. If someone wants to make a vegan spaghetti bolognese, fine, great. But again, it's the context of the diet pattern as a whole. And so what I'd say to people is, you know, don't necessarily just stop eating meat Mm, and continue with, you know, relatively poor. Like the goal is always to improve nutritional quality overall. And so you can eat a diet without meat that's perfectly terrible. Yeah, so, it's so true. You could is, be is having that... like crisps every single day yeah, and be a yeah. vegan. And I think a lot of people see the headlines that Beyonce's gone vegan or um, they see that jackfruit is the new amazing miracle, whereas actually jackfruit has no protein and mm. it's used as a protein replacement in foods. So, yeah, yeah, you're right there completely. So be very careful, everyone. And you were also asking me, I had a lot of questions come in as well, and plant-based diets have definitely spiked. So what do you think is going to be the next trend that's going to come around the corner? I've no idea because it's just it's almost disheartening <laughs> at this point in nutrition. What can we possibly to, pick next? To, you know, I, I really don't know. I mean, what's the next trend? I don't think plant-based necessarily is uh, a trend in not. and of itself because mm. I think when we factor in the environment, it is important that we consider these so questions. Important. But I do think we were talking about, so there's ethical considerations, yes. there's nutritional considerations. I do also think that there is a kind of cultural element to, mm. to veganism now where people are adopting it because Beyonce is doing it exactly. or whatever. And I do think it's kind of vogue. I think if you look at the demographics of this kind of diet. Oh, you know, it's you're a privileged going to see place. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. you won't find people that on a budget yeah, going vegan in exactly. the countryside very rarely so I think we have to consider that in terms of what the next kind of wave of, of nonsense is going to be I, I thought we'd seen it all with the carnivore diet oh oh, dear. Um, I had some <laughs> horrific experience with that at the beginning of the year I did one of my myth busting right. um, Monday posts well it's myth busting with Rena and I did it on the carnivore diet and my picture on my post was taken over the internet and all the carnivore websites and I was being completely trolled yeah. I was blocking so many people it was horrendous yeah, it's it's a bizarre cult, really, oh, is all terrifying. it is. Um, but, you know, I mean, are we going to get a plant-based alternative where someone only eats chickpeas twice a day or something like that? I, I don't know. <laughs> so for those listening, um, carnivore diet is basically what it says. People just eat meat and believe that it cures chronic illness. Yeah. To the, the average diet, apparently, if you look on kind of forums and stuff, is yeah. two ribeye steaks a day 
which you can cook in butter. The faces in the studios right now are just <laughs> just a picture. In, in no realm is that in any way good. <laughs> it, it's really not, is it? It's no. really not. So we can't no. really predict the next trend. But what we can do is comment on the different misconceptions around snacking in general, because I think snacking is something that is a big market for it now mm-hmm. as well. But it shouldn't really be demonized. There's a lot of people out there that say, yes, you should snack or no, you shouldn't. Yeah. I think we just are in a place now where everyone is talking about nutrition in terms of should and shouldn't. Mm-hmm. And really, for the most part, that just is a reflection of people's personal opinions and not exactly. necessarily evidence. Um, you know, has, for example, when we look at factors that have perhaps environmental factors that have been associated with increasing trends in lifestyle mm. disease, you definitely do see a category of increased snacking. But what that actually means is increasing uh, levels of energy intake between meals. Mm. So actually what it means just is that outside of set meals that we would traditionally identify as, say, Mm. breakfast, lunch and dinner, people are basically just eating all day, every day. They're Mm. eating on the go. Mm. And snacking often overlaps with increasing consumption of energy away from the home, which is another big variable that we see. So people don't eat within the home anymore. And there's a number of factors that go into that. People stay single for longer. Ah. So they eat out more often. Single parent households might be under financial pressure. And so they, again, eat out often in kind of fast food convenience uh, access uh, restaurant points. Um, And people just eat on the go a lot now because we lead busier lives. Exactly. So the 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 net effect of increasing your kind of snacking or your eating on the go or or eating away from the home is that people don't have control over the composition of the diet mm. that they're eating and that's why you can actually look at someone in the states and compare them with someone in the UK and compare them with someone in Australia mm. and actually the comp- if they're consuming that kind of typical diet pattern the composition of their diet is going to be largely similar so i mean snacking in and of itself is not good it's not bad it's it's totally context dependent and if snacking is occurring in the context of someone already eating set meals already eating a high energy intake and they're snacking relatively mindlessly while they're on the go between Mm -hmm. meetings then it's probably problematic of course over the long term if someone likes to have a snack at four o'clock to tie them over because it's going to be eight before they get home for dinner let let them at it so that's my philosophy and some people genuinely need it we've got everyone's unique so some people will have a lot of energy to burn every day and they need that constant fuel. The one thing that you see clear in the research is that meal frequency is largely irrelevant. Yes. It just comes down to total energy balance. It does and what works for your body. Yeah. So so snacking is potentially problematic if it's putting someone in in constant energy surplus over time. It's not problematic if it's not, no. for the most part. That That's exactly the best way to summarise it. I think a lot of people believe almost like snacking is, was hailed as being the answer to health. Well, superfoods are something that I can't believe I'm even still bringing it up. Mm. I mean, this was years ago in my eyes, but it's still around. You see them everywhere. Products marketed as the turmeric, the chia seeds or chai seeds, however you want to say it, um, spirulina. It's everywhere. I mean, recently I saw, I think it was like CBD oil being added to things and coconut oil added to drinks and lattes. And I mean, mm-hmm. what's going on, Alan? Yeah, Why I still is haven't it so figured magical? out how to say chaya or chia seeds. Yeah, I'm either. not sure, but it's turmeric um, or turmeric, you know? I'm yeah, just, well, um, <laughs> we're not woke enough. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, I, I think it, it comes back to the privilege thing. 
um, and the kind of classist approach to food that mm-hmm. has developed. And it's almost another way of expressing that you're cooler, better, more aware than somebody else. Yeah. Um, food choice and expression has become a tool for that as much as what someone wears or what music they listen to. So true. So it's a real cultural reinforcement of someone's identity and their self construct mm. to be able to say, well, you know, this is what I eat or this, this is what I buy or this, this is my... Morning. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's Gwyneth Paltrow syndrome yeah, it is, isn't on it? a wider level. Yeah. Um, oh, and I didn't even bring up Goop, but that's another <laughs> yeah. thing I should maybe. <laughs> yeah, you could. Look, for everyone out there, it's simply not it's a reliable not, source no. of nutrition or health information. No, it's... Stop paying attention. Yeah, no, it's really not. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Uh, and I think, um, actually, on a kind of similar level, so I love a documentary, mm. and I have been inundated ever since this particular documentary came out. It's called What the Health. Yeah. Yeah, I know. The sigh mm. is there. Um, I seem to spend daily daily time on Instagram replying to people, referring them to actual sources of correct information about mm-hmm. the documentary. Could you go into some of the claims that I've seen that eggs are as bad as cigarettes, which we both know is scientifically not true? Nonsense. Yeah, nonsense. So how is this nonsense able to be formulated in such an impressionable manner? Because... Human beings are emotive, illogical creatures, and Mm. that's why we developed science. So science isn't perfect. No. But for a species that have a lot of cognitive biases, um, we're prone to thought errors. So Mm. we develop science as a means to try and answer questions while minimizing our biases and our preconceptions. And so it's not perfect, but it's the best tool that we've ever developed to do that. But most people aren't interested in that because it's boring and it's facts and it involves reading papers. So what is far more convincing Mm. to people is emotive arguments that are well formulated, that play on perhaps things like conspiracy ideas and and whatever. Going back to the first question we asked about conspiracy theories. And so when you have something like What the Health that is formulated under a veil of being scientific because Mm. they pull on a couple of doctors slash whatever, nutritionists, yes. slash who are clearly all as biased as you could possibly be. Yes. 
You have an agenda. To have an agenda and they put it all together, weaving it into a narrative. That's another thing people love. They love a story. Mm, so people are emotive. They like a story over facts. Mm. And ultimately, that has, through media then, and social media and things like Netflix, and the, the democratization of opinion, which is really problematic. Because when people watch something like that, everyone now assumes that their opinion is entitled to equal weight as to everybody else's. Mm. And people confuse the right to have an opinion, which everybody does, mm. with the weight that that opinion attaches. Yes. So yes. just because you have an opinion on something doesn't mean it outweighs or is equal to an expert. No. Um, so people are entitled to an opinion, but that opinion can be perfectly shit. So. Well, yeah, exactly. And I think it's caused um, immense confusion amongst the general public. I mean, I've had clients come in with disordered eating behaviours being extremely terrified to go near certain types of food again. And other people thinking... I've got a family to look after. I've been feeding them the wrong foods and this documentary mm-hmm. says I'm wrong. So you're right. I think it plays on. But you, you heard it from Alan's words there that it's basically not a good source of information. No now, Netflix documentary is. No, that they have a purpose. It's almost like when you watch X Factor and it makes you cry when someone mm-hmm. gets through. It's the story. The story will get you. Could we discuss? The, OK, I've got a few myth busting kind of topics mm-hmm. I want to go through as well. Dairy. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people seem to think that dairy is is inherently bad for mm-hmm. you. Yeah. Um, I think what the health also has, a, has lot a lot to answer, to answer for. <laughs> yes, it does. With the dairy thing <laughs> and, the, and the whole it contains pus and antibiotics. And again, we're taking ethics out here, guys. Yeah. Um, ethical choices taking, aside. Yeah. Taking ethics out of the does equation. Does it contain pus? No. There you go. Uh, it doesn't contain antibiotics. Mm-hmm. It doesn't contain hormones that are going Thank to you. influence... Things like breast cancer or otherwise. Where has that come from? um, I don't really know. I think it's come, I think it's more of an Americanized narrative about milk and the kind of industry over there and a lot of the ideas that, you know, Mm. people had. Now, in fairness, there is a lot less regulation in the States than there is in the EU. But in the EU, we have really strict laws about Mm. what you can and cannot do with animals, what can Mm. be added to feed and Mm. that kind of thing. So antibiotic growth agents are banned. So, you know, we're we're subject to a lot more regulation, which is why the US and and Europe don't have a new transatlantic trade agreement. You won't see US steaks (laughs) on the shelf here. No. So Thank goodness. Yeah. And so that there is definitely less regulation over there. But overall taking those regulatory and ethical issues out of the equation, what we're talking about is the health effects of a food group. And the food group is consistently associated with positive health outcomes so across the board. So many outcomes, guys. Yeah. So it's a great source of protein. <laughs> yeah. And it's really important to clarify this because dairy is getting a knock now so much so that people aren't choosing to give infants dairy-based formula growing up Which and it's really problematic from a public health perspective mm-hmm. and they're randomly opting for plant-based alternatives that don't have any of the nutritional composition no of milk or the protein content. Yeah. No, I mean even fortification of a plant-based milk will never be bioavailable or it can't really compare no, to the quality no. you get in dairy. So, so milk is a great food source. The, the, the research on yogurt consumption and health outcomes is unbelievably positive. Yeah. Um, the good Greek yogurt guys, listen. There we go. So, you know, it's a broad food group as well. So, Mm. for example, 
butter and cheese will have completely different effects on blood cholesterol levels. So people tend to forget butter is is refined. Mm. So if you compare the exact same amount of butter and cheese, they both have the exact same saturated fat content, but actually the cheese won't have a negative impact on your blood cholesterol levels, whereas the butter will. And there's a lot of conflicting stuff out there on butter, isn't there, as well? Well, it's just been part of this whole, you know, kind of uh, ancient approach to, you know, we should be eating what our ancestors ate and our ancestors ate butter. And it's like, yeah, and there was 50% more cardiovascular mortality when our ancestors were horsing Mm -hmm. the butter. Mm -hmm. So let's be careful with Mm -hmm. that. Um, Butter's fine in moderation, like any food. Spread a bit on your toast, it's grand. But this idea of putting two two tablespoons in your coffee is about as dumb as the carnivore diet. So I actually remember, I think it was around three years ago, confronting this coffee butter movement on Twitter. Mm. And I was asking, where's the research? You know, I really wanted to genuinely see. And I just kept being referred to blogs on this website, just blogs, because they had no research. No, of course not. Yeah, nothing behind it. So please, coffee, um, butter in your coffee is not an answer. so disgusting. Yeah, it tastes yeah. Re- well. I, I don't know. Personal preferences may differ out there, Alan. You never know. True. <laughs> True. But what about ketogenic diets? So again, I know the research that I've heard about it is to do with epilepsy, but it seems mm-hmm. to be being used in a fitness space. I'm seeing it in yeah. a lot of gyms and personal trainers. Yeah, it's exploded in the fitness space. Um, I- I don't really necessarily know why. Mm. I think it very much does tie in with this obsession that we have now in some people of, you know, animal fat is good for us. Just cut Mm. all the carbs, eat more animal Mm. fat. Um, I think when we look at keto, it is important to, I guess anyone in nutrition would know that, yeah, it is a clinical nutrition intervention. It's been used since the 1920s to treat epilepsy in kids Mm. that are resistant to drugs that treat epilepsy. Mm. So not every kid responds to those anti-epileptic drugs, the ketogenic diet is often used and it's really beneficial for them. Uh, But this idea that it kind of comes away from that and has come into the popular space and that people are using it in a sports realm or in a performance realm, there is zero published evidence. The published evidence on the ketogenic diet is absolutely appalling in terms of sports performance or in terms of you physiologically cannot put on muscle because the mechanisms that promote muscle protein synthesis are all shut off when you're on a ketogenic diet Mm -hmm. because it's a starvation mimicking diet. Precisely. And the... You're also lacking immense amounts of fibre. Yeah. And and my problem is the ketogenic diet can be done well nutritionally. It takes a lot of nutritional awareness to be able to do it well, to have primarily unsaturated fats, not saturated, to maintain a high fibre intake. The other thing I'd say about fibre is all of the data that we have on fibre, we really know it's beneficial. Yeah. But actually, when you look at the foods that seem to be beneficial for providing mm. fiber, it's things like legumes, whole exactly. grains, and other plant foods. on a ketogenic diet, Yeah, basically. so people on a ketogenic diet will often say, well, I get fiber, but I get it from chia seeds or chia, whatever. Yeah. I get it from avocado. <laughs> it's like, actually, even though, yes, they are high fiber foods, we don't have data on whether the fiber in those foods no. is as good as fiber in, yeah. say, a chickpea or oats. Yeah. So I think people are taking a really speculative punt on their long-term health health on a mm. diet for which we have no long-term data nope. on. But what long-term data is there on, say, lower carbohydrate diets would really be cause for caution. And the increase in cardiovascular mortality that we see on long-term mm. low-carbohydrate diets, typically because people eat lower fiber and Precisely. eat more saturated fat, yeah. that's not a great combination for no. heart health over the long term. So 
I don't know why it's become so popular in the fitness space. I think um, quick results may be yeah, partly to yeah, do with absolutely. that, of course. Yeah, yeah, because I think you lose a lot of water weight, you lose a lot yeah. of glycogen, stored energy from yeah. carbs. And for people listening, I should have explained, ketogenic diets are basically when you limit your carbohydrates to a very, very small amount a day. And mm-hmm. the problem is you get carbs in fruit, in vegetables, basically all the good stuff that we've yeah. described. So you are pretty much, again, eating very limited amounts of yeah. variety in your diet exactly. with a slab of meat or protein. And just because it has utility for disease states potentially mm. doesn't mean that it's an, a positive idea for the general population. No. And no. again, it comes back to that idea that we're talking about people who are already healthy, I know. who are the ones obsessed with <laughs> yeah, yeah, healing yeah. themselves. And, yeah. and, you know, yeah. and, and, and <laughs> I need to do this extreme diet, you know, yeah. because disease. And it's like, you're it's like we have fine. a wish to punish ourselves yeah. to do extreme things. And it kind of leads me on to the final kind of myth busting before we take questions from followers and that's on detoxing Mm. Um, we know you and I that the detox industry is huge I think the word's actually been taken out of context hugely Mm -hmm. the worrying thing is I think the word can be used sometimes occasionally with with good kind of cause behind it for what somebody's trying to say but in the food industry Mm. that's a whole other ball game isn't it yeah so detoxification is is not necessarily it is a buzzword now yes. but it's also a word with with physiological relevance yeah so for people out there i guess a detoxification 101 the the very fact that you're breathing is why you have detoxification capabilities mm-hmm. because carbon dioxide is toxic so mm-hmm. <laughs> we we've evolved taking in things from the environment, some of which are essential to life, like oxygen or food, but which the byproducts of may potentially cause damage in the body unless we have systems in place to actually process them and then eliminate them. And that system is your liver yeah. and your urinary and your <laughs> yes. and, and your, your systems of excretion, which also include things like sweat. Yeah. So we have mechanisms to, we will take in compounds like this. We will to turn them basically into mm-hmm. something that is less potentially problematic and then we'll get rid of it. Yeah. Um, that process happens all day, every day. That process Naturally. happens around the clock. Mm. It's a process governed largely by your liver. You don't need anything else to support it. You don't but need the a broad tea or You don't need any of this stuff. <laughs> no. But it, it, I think, so that's what detoxification is in mm. the body. But I think when we're talking about it now as a buzzword, what mm. it's playing on is people's, this idea that, you know, again, it comes back to these moralization of, of pure, food. Maybe. So people are, mm. everything now is this idea of, yeah, purity, mm. this idea of something being, you know, bad or toxic in the environment. And again, it, it ties back to, to the idea that, you know, we're not living in, in a world where we were designed to live in and there's fumes in the air and there's no, and it's all this kind of stuff. And this desire, again, that people who are mostly already healthy have to heal themselves and be pure. And that there's, I think we need to pay attention to the language of a lot of these movements because, you know, there's a very clear moral righteousness in the pursuit of these uh, ideals and goals. Exactly. And I think that that's hugely problematic mm. um, on so many levels. It's I think healthism. It goes past a um, thirst for knowledge, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. yeah, no, it goes to fear-based decision-making yeah. uh, about someone's health yeah. um, and and then expressing that in a form of healthism that is just totally inaccessible. And the media hasn't helped because we did have a time when the clean eating kind of thing came out that didn't help either. Mm-hmm. It does prey on people that are already in this kind of world yeah. that see, oh, if, if so-and-so is living this way, therefore so must I. Yeah, you yeah know, There exactly. are retreats that exist everywhere around the world still. Yeah. That are about detoxing the body. Yeah. So I can see what they mean. They just yeah. want you to feel Purge good. And purify. But that is not the moral thing behind it. So, anyway, I've asked all of my questions and we've right. got lots from followers now. Okay. So, Simone has said, What's all the fuss about drinking celery juice in the morning? What makes it so powerful? She said, There's nothing powerful. Well, I'll tell you what's powerful <laughs> about this. What's powerful about this is people's susceptibility to rubbish information. How has it gone by? Let's, let's take one. I want to kind of almost ask listeners a question with okay. this. Okay, go. What makes you think that someone who gives their advice based on saying that he gets it from listening to ghosts talk to him, in what world does that sound logical? Like a sound basis for the yeah. information you're getting. I don't think it's a lot of people <laughs> will even know it comes from a guy called right. the medical yeah. medium. The celery juice craze comes from an individual <laughs> called the medical medium. That will make and sense. And the medium part makes sense <laughs> when you understand that he says he gets his information from ghosts. <laughs> now, if anyone is actually taking what he's saying seriously without considering that fact, I think we're just going off the precipice of lunacy. <laughs> I, honestly, I can't tell you how many articles I've written in the last two to three months on celery juice yeah. saying it's just water with a bit of hydration. And yeah. Vitamins. And celery's not that great on its own anyway. Like, don't tell me that people aren't out there holding their nose to choke this down in the morning for Some what people have said they enjoy it. Fair uh, enough they're they do, But I, I, I kind of am with you. I would not want to drink anything like that. So yeah. Jordan has said, my personal trainer has told me to cut carbs to lose weight, which is so difficult. But is he right? No. no. He's flat out wrong. And he also shouldn't be giving you nutrition advice because he's a personal trainer, not yes. a nutritionist. A little high five So they need there. to stay in their lane. And mm-hmm. just because they're broadly involved in the health space doesn't mean they know everything about all manner of things that relate to health. Mm-hmm. So you should probably just tell him to focus on your workouts and giving you good programming because that's what he should be good at. And you should get your nutrition advice from somewhere else. And for someone who's exercising regularly, please do not cut carbohydrates out of your diet. Mm -hmm. They're a great fuel source. They provide unbelievable amounts of benefits in terms of micronutrients and fiber in particular. And they're just delicious. Yeah, they're delicious. And as Alan said earlier as well, heart health is also drastically affected by things like that. So that's going to keep your body going and your exercise. So Laura has said, that kind of leads me on on the carb subject, she said, how much fruit is too much fruit in a day? There, there isn't really a massive... So fruit has been demonized yes. because the type of sugar in it, fructose, somewhat structurally relates to a type of added sugar that is more common in the US food supply, which is high fructose corn syrup. Mm. We don't have that in the UK. It's not used over here or in the rest of Europe. What is used is sucrose, is the primary mm. sugar that you would find, for example, in Coca-Cola. There was this idea that if you eat a lot of fructose or consume a lot of fructose, you'll increase 
the amount of fat in the liver and that that's associated with health problems. But that was from mechanistic research, which was using really, really high doses of the single sugar type Mm. of fructose. And the reason that's important is one, mechanistic research isn't designed to apply to the general population. It's designed to just give us an idea of how stuff happens. But two, the doses that are used in those studies would never translate to an amount of fruit that you would eat. So you would have to eat something in the region of over 100 grams a day of pure fructose to get anywhere Mm. near a dose that could increase, for example, liver fat. Mm. And to do that through whole fruit, you'd probably have to eat about 10 pieces, give or take. Yeah. When we say whole fruit, again, it comes down to composition of the diet. So you're taking fructose with a lot of fiber in the piece of fruit you're eating, hopefully, that also contains some wonderful things. So please don't see it as just sugar. So as as a general kind of rule, even though it's not hard and fast, you know, it depends on, on... Vegetables are probably more important than fruit overall. But generally, I'd say to people, like, if you're in the range of two to five even, you're you're fine. That's grand. Exactly. And as always, it's very hard to give bespoke advice because we don't know what your overall diet's like. So Tim has said, which again leads on from that very nicely, what foods would you never, ever eat? There's no such thing. There you go. The only food you would never, ever eat would be gluten-containing foods if you're a celiac. Mm -hmm. Perhaps, obviously, dairy if you had a lactose intolerance, Mm -hmm. which was diagnosed. Or an allergy, like a peanut allergy. Or an allergy. Um, If you had anaphylaxia, Mm -hmm. you'd have to avoid nuts and Mm -hmm. some other foods. There are some people that will have adult allergies to other foods like shellfish. There are some common allergies. And the reason why foods that adults have allergies to, like shellfish and nuts and tree nuts and soy, are are the most common foods is because of the size, the structural size of the protein in those foods. So mm. it, it tends to trigger a response in people who have adult allergies. But outside of those, which are all readily identifiable, there's no reason to avoid any particular food yeah. for health reasons. Very nicely put. So the final one is from Arun. Is that Arun or Arun? It's a very, very lovely spelling of of the name there, unless it's my typo of the question, (laughs) which would be embarrassing. No, it's A-R-U-N. Arun. 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 Or it's my typo. Anyway, so he has said, or she, after most exercise classes, there's either a protein bar or shake for sale. Um, Does everyone really need to take one to... um, That's just all she said, just to take one. No, not necessarily. Um, One, it's probably going to be expensive. In terms of recovery from exercise, what you're talking about is um, muscle protein synthesis. Really Mm. technical, fancy term Mm. for your body getting an external source of protein in in order to recover Mm. from the damage that has occurred to muscles during exercise. And I would throw in there that we had a whole episode um, that's already out with James Collins on exercise nutrition. We we touch on protein synthesis. So so basically the the old thinking that you had to slam a protein source down (laughs) literally before you'd actually got into the changing rooms after training Um, we know isn't necessarily the case. Mm -hmm. For your average exerciser, once you have a protein-containing meal within about, you could stretch it to three hours, but really probably within about two hours or around two hours afterwards, you're going to be fine. Your, your, Your muscle protein synthesis response is going to be about the same Mm. as it would be if you had it immediately afterwards. So what I generally say to people is, If you're going home afterwards and if you're going to be consuming a normal mixed meal, 
with a protein source and your carbohydrate and whatever, you know, two hours after that, that's absolutely fine. But, you know, if you were, if it's in the morning, for example, and you're going into a busy day and you may not eat till lunchtime, then maybe it wouldn't be a bad idea to just grab it. They have a place, don't they? Yeah, they have a place. So we're now moving on to my favourite part of the podcast, and that is the fact or fiction round. Are you ready? I am. Okay. Frozen and canned produce is less nutritious than fresh. Fiction. Okay. Eating gluten is not harmful for most people. Fact. Eating fat makes you fat. Pure fiction. (laughs) Breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Fiction. Dairy causes bloating. Pure fiction. Oh, yeah, there we go. Pure fiction. You should periodically do a cleanse like a juice fast. Fiction. Never. Never, never, never. Colonics are not good for gut health. Fact. Brilliant. I I feel like we should touch on colonics after a little bit, actually. Um, Limit fruit intake due to its sugar content. Fiction. Eating after 8pm does not cause weight gain. Does not. (laughs) That's super nuanced. That's not a fact fiction answer. (laughs) Generally, no. Uh But we have some... And what my PhD is in Mm. is timing of food intake, Mm. so chrononutrition. Mm. And we do think that a lot of energy intake after 8 p.m. is not a great idea Mm. over the long term. Mm. So nuanced. Nuanced. There we go. We had um, one guest called it faction. Faction, yeah. Yeah. A little (laughs) bit of a mix. I like that. Yeah, that's what Dr. Grimes said. Um, The last one, food is medicine. False. (laughs) Fiction. (laughs) Complete fiction. Well done. Excellent quick fire round. (laughs) And that nearly wraps up this episode. But as with every guest, we finish with a food for thought. Okay. So mine today would be that it seems like every week there's a new headline or influencer telling us to start or stop eating something. And one minute a food is good for us, the next minute it's been linked to cancer. Often these messages are simply scaremongering tactics urging us to click and read more. I would encourage us all to look beyond face value when it comes to nutritional claims. As we've discussed on this podcast, what's important to understand is the source of the information and deciding whether or not it's actually plausible. If it looks too good to be true or it's very extreme, it probably isn't accurate. So one of the best sources of information you can currently get in the UK would be the NHS Behind the Headlines, which does actually look at studies in detail and explains whether they've been reported correctly Um, or in the press they've been exaggerated you can have a good look there and as always please seek out qualified nutrition advice from a registered nutritionist or dietitian so Alan if you could leave the listeners putting you on the spot with a food for thought or one thing you think they should really take away from today what would that be? I'm going to stick with the example of the medical medium and (laughs) someone communicating with spirits as Mm. a means of Mm telling people what or what not to do with diet. And what I'd like everyone, I think, and I think we can all do with this right now, to start engaging a bit more with is critical thinking. I think right now we're a little too quick to be led to bad information, to consume it, to start to believe it. And it doesn't take a huge amount to stop and to ask some hard questions. It doesn't take a lot for people on social media 
to ask someone for the evidence behind whatever they've posted or what their claim is. And I think you need to start becoming a bit more ruthless with where you consume information from. So if someone can't give you evidence to support something they've made, unfollow them. Mm. And what I a post I did recently when I said that even though you might think that your one unfollow to someone with mm. 500,000 followers is insignificant, it's actually a radical act of rebellion mm. against the perpetuation of misinformation that we have currently. So I think we need to become a bit more healthily skeptical. We need to also acknowledge that most of the issues at a population level for diet and health are socioeconomic. Mm. We need to be more conscious of that when we have conversations about what is good or bad. Mm. We need to have more perspective. We need to be more critically appraising of the information that we get and think critically and ask some hard questions. And I think if we do that, we'll make far more progress moving away from the space of misinformation and and nutri-nonsense that we're currently in now. Nutri-nonsense. I like it. Um, That was a wonderful way to wrap up the episode. And just to ask you very quickly as well, um, so I've I've heard of this a lot of time. If someone does question someone for information and they come back with just one study, Mm. Is that often perhaps not great? Um, It's difficult for that individual, but I would always say that one study does not ever prove anything in Mm. science. So Mm. I would say it's not enough, unless it's a very rare niche area where there might only be one study in it. Mm. But that is a unicorn for the most part. So if they're only throwing one thing at you and it looks quite token, or there's only a link to the abstract, Mm -hmm. then I think that's a red flag. Okay, perfect. Well, Alan, where can people find out more about you if they want to learn more? Um, I keep that aspect to me pretty small. So only Instagram <laughs> Great. Uh, at the nutritional underscore advocate. Um, and what you'll typically just find out of me is very much specific to nutrition, science, communication, research breakdowns and that kind of information. Which is why you were the perfect guest today. Alan, thank you for coming on Food for Thought. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. It's heartening to know there's such a craving to hear from expert voices in a world full of confusing nutritional advice. If you enjoyed this episode, you'll love what's coming next week. So click subscribe to be the first to hear it. And please do leave a five-star review. It really does help get our podcast out there and hopefully help more people. For more information about my nutrition clinic, books, healthy recipes, events, retreats, and so much more, please visit retrition.com and follow me at retrition on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Hex Square Sausage Range is backed by popular demand. As with the rest of Hex Range, which also includes veggie and vegan options, you can be sure of high quality produce. They're the perfect shape for sandwiching between a couple of slices of wholemeal bread on a Sunday morning or topping with chutney as a dinner party starter. You can find Hex Fair and Square sausages in Tesco or online at heckfood.co.uk. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.